Hey everyone, welcome back. It is episode 16 of the Jurisprudence Course Podcast. My name is Scott Shapiro, and today we're going to talk about legal interpretation. So it should be uh, hopefully a fun show. Um, also today, uh, we're back to low-tech homebrew because the special microphone that I got, um, my Yeti microphone for podcasting, I left up in New Haven. So um, doing this off of an iPad, I have my Beats headset on, wireless headset, of which I take the my iPhone and I stick it to the microphone on the headset, and that's why it sounds like shit. Um, but who cares? Let's get down to business. So we're going to talk about legal interpretation today. Um, it's going to be the first of several episodes where we talk about legal interpretation and like a, a, a lot of the points that we've made over the course of the pandemic um, will come up in this episode and the next several episodes. Uh, talking about legal interpretation is very philosophical, very jurisprudential, and so we'll need some of that machinery that we've been talking about in order to get a handle on uh, the topic of legal interpretation and questions about how to interpret legal text and interpretive methodology. So let's get to business right away and let's first say, what is legal interpretation? Oh, but by the way, let me just say that the, I, I did Jimi Hendrix uh, all along the Watchtower because that was an interpretation of Bob Dylan's all along the Watchtower. Um, and uh, so... Um, there are many different kinds of interpretation. Today, we're just going to talk about legal interpretation as opposed to artistic interpretation or scientific interpretation or literary interpretation or what, what have you. So what is legal interpretation? Well, you know, first cut, it's the process of telling you what the law is. You look at some text, you apply some method, and you get the law. That's legal interpretation. Let's call the method that you use in legal interpretation an interpretive methodology. So an interpretive, meth uh, an interpretive methodology is like a function. It takes texts, legal texts as arguments, and it spits out the law as the value. It's a method for reading legal texts. So examples of interpretive methodology include in the constitutional realm, originalism, textualism, living constitutionalism, common law constitutionalism, you know, there's a lot, lots of them. Um, at statutory level, there's textualism, intentionalism, purposivism, uh, dynamic statutory interpretation, lots of different isms, lots of different interpretive methodologies at the statutory level as well. Um, and so we have these, we, we have a lot of different candidate interpreter methodologies that we can um, choose from when we want to figure out what is the right way to read a legal text in a particular legal system. Now, it's leave it open that it could be the case that there's one interpretive methodology that's valid for every legal system. I don't think that's true. Uh, I think every legal system has its own interpretive methodology, and we're going to 
take that as um, our assumption. So we're going to ask, what's the right interpretive methodology for the American legal system? And then we're going to be want to be more careful, maybe sometimes to talk about like, well, no, we're talking about the federal system, not the state, not not, not New York state, but the U.S. federal um, system. What's the right way to interpret text there? And then we'll be actually might need to be more careful there. We're talk, talking about, well, what kind of text, constitutional text versus statutory text versus court opinions versus um, administrative regulations. Okay. Um, when we look at interpret, interpretive methodologies more closely, what we see is that they don't just take texts into account. They take other events and states into account as well. So, for example, take originalism uh, that says that in order to interpret inter uh, uh, constitutional provisions, you should take into account the original understanding. There, the interpretive methodology doesn't just take the constitutional text into account. It takes into account other types of events and states, mental states of those who framed the provisions. And so... If we, if we wanted to be a bit more clear about what interpretive methodology is, we would say it's like a function that takes legal texts, uh, mental states, uh, events, social practices, takes those as arguments, and then delivers up legal norms as the value. Okay. One other point I want to make, and it's a bit technical, but I want to make it because it's important, especially for somebody like me who's an exclusive legal positivist. Um, the way I just describe an interpretive methodology is, and the process of legal interpretation, is that you take stuff, texts, practices, mental states, and it gives you the law, the content of the law. Now. I think that's a little bit limiting. What I would rather say is that legal interpretation and interpretive methodologies either give you the law or extend the law. Now, why do I want to make this added um, point about that interpret uh, legal interpretation might result in extending the law? Well, remember, um, and exclusively the positivist, I mean, other people are, are not, but we can ignore them because they're wrong. But um, so let's take an example like um, this prohibition is against cruel punishment. Uh, and let's say the death penalty is cruel. No court has ruled that the death penalty is cruel, but let's say it is cruel. Now, according to exclusively the positivism, the law doesn't prohibit the death penalty until a court declares it so. The only thing that's against the law is cruel punishment. It's a moral fact that death penalty is cruel. So if you're following the law, which prohibits cruel punishment, what you should do if you're a court is extend the law to have it cover the death penalty. And so when you decide that the death penalty is cruel, you'll be extending the law because you'll be 
engaging in moral reasoning in applying the law that prohibits cruel punishment. Now, it seems to me that when a court has to decide that the death penalty is cruel and therefore it's prohibited by a law that prohibits cruel punishment, what the court is doing is interpreting the law. It seems like a very natural thing to say, oh, the court just struck down the death penalty under, let's say, the Eighth Amendment. They were interpreting the Eighth Amendment. Now, on the exclusive legal positivist model, what the court would be doing would be extending the law. So therefore, we don't want to say that interpretation is just discovering the law, it may be, in fact, extending the law. Okay, so just want to make clear that that, like, when we talk about legal interpretation, people like Ronald Dworkin, for example, thinks what you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out what the law is. Whereas somebody like myself, who's an exclusively legal positivist, thinks that what you're, in many cases, what you're doing is you're extending the law. Um, and so I think we should have a concept of interpretation which is more capacious than just finding the law could be extending the law. Okay, enough of, uh, uh, enough of that. Um, so we have all these, for any legal system, for any given set of texts, we have a lot of different interpretive methodologies. In fact, there's an infinite number of interpretive methodologies. And so the question is, how do we choose which is the right one? Um, should we be originalist? Should we be textualist? Should we be living constitutionalist? What do we do? Now, uh, let me call the process of determining which interpretive methodology the right one. Let me call that meta-interpretation. And a theory that sets out a system of meta-interpretation, I'm going to call a meta-interpretive theory. And I call it a meta-interpretive theory because it doesn't set out a specific methodology for interpreting legal texts, but rather a methodology for determining which specific methodology is proper. It, a meta-interpretive theory provides us with the resources to figure out whether to endorse textualism or living constitutionalism or pragmatism or laws integrity or whatever you have it, okay? So now the theory that Dworkin uses to derive the grounds of law in a particular legal system that is constructive interpretation, um, that's his theory of meta-interpretation. That is, according to Dworkin's theory of meta-interpretation, an interpretive methodology is proper for a particular legal system just in case it's required by the principles that place the system in its best light. Okay, so remember when we talked about Dworkin, there were two steps. There was the first step of trying to figure out what the grounds of law are, and then the second step of applying the grounds of law. And we found, we saw that um, constructive interpretation is the process at both stages. The way I will want to put it is that um, the first stage of legal interpretation for Dworkin is what I call meta-interpretation, is figuring out what the right interpretive methodology is for a particular legal system. Dworkin thinks is that what you're supposed to do is engage in constructive interpretation at that point whatever. I just want to know the first stage is, is meta-interpretation. The second stage is applying the interpretive methodology. And for Dworkin, meta-interpretation gives you law's integrity. 
as the right interpretive methodology. And so at stage two, you apply law's integrity in order to figure out what the law is, okay? So whereas Dworkin considers that all legal interpretation, I'd like to distinguish between the meta-interpretive level, which is stage one, and the interpretive methodology, which is stage two, okay? Uh, law's integrity is Dworkin's uh, preferred interpretive methodology, uh, but that itself is derived from the constructive interpretation, which is his meta-interpretive theory. Okay. Um, so what, what I'm going to, because Dworkin lumps this all together, what I'm going to do is I'm going to distinguish between meta-interpreters and then people who engage in legal interpretation. So like when you're trying to figure out what the right interpretive methodology is, you're a meta-interpreter. And then when you got the interpretive methodology and you're applying it, then you're just an interpreter. Okay, so I'm sorry for all the ground clearing, but I just want to get clear, you know, that there really are two stages here and we have to keep these separate. And what's so damn confusing about Dworkin is that constructive interpretation is both his meta-interpretive theory and his interpretive methodology. Um, and we, we've gone over this, but it just, I wanted to re, re, re um, uh, kind of uh, um, use this new terminology that I'm gonna employ for the next couple of episodes uh, but show you how it applied to the stuff that we talked about beforehand. Okay, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna take a break, and when we come back, we will be talking about um, the standard picture and linguistic meaning. Okay, see you in a sec. Okay. Hey, everyone. Part two. So every year, some very smart student comes into my office and says, look, I did work in philosophy of language when I was an undergraduate or a graduate student, and I want to work on legal interpretation, which is a very natural thought, which is that if you want to figure out the right way to interpret a legal text, you got to get the semantics right. And philosophy of language tells you about what the semantics are of natural language. And so all you have to do is get the linguistic content right and you'll get the legal content right. Clearly what's going on is that uh, students are trying to get law school credit for doing philosophy of language, which is what they'd rather do. And I get that. Um, but the, the problem here is that the students and actually many people have a picture about what legal interpretation is that makes questions of philosophy of language central, but that, that I think is a, a very bankrupt theory of legal interpretation. 
this is something that uh, Mark Greenberg calls the standard picture. The standard picture of legal interpretation essentially says that legal content is linguistic content. If you want to know what the law is, figure out what the legal texts mean, and the meaning of the text will give you the meaning of the law. The standard picture seems to be at the heart of Hart's theory. Remember when we talked about Hart's theory, no vehicles in the park, we said that for Hart, in order to interpret no vehicles in the park, you're going to figure out what the general terms mean and what the settled core is. So a vehicle, a, a, a car is a vehicle, and so therefore a car is not legally permitted in the park uh, simply by virtue of what the general term vehicle means. It seems as though what Hart is offering is a view that says, if you want to understand legal texts, tell me what it means in natural language, and that'll be what the law is. I, I, I would just say, certainly that's the way Hart presents it. It's possible that he didn't mean to provide a general theory of legal interpretation along these lines, but certainly seems like he was. Um, you get the standard theory a lot, the standard picture a lot when uh, people talk about judges. And sometimes what they'll say is, I mean, not just sometimes, they say it all the time. They'll say, judges should stick to the text. And if they don't stick to the text, then they'll be creating law, and that's not their role. If they didn't stick to the text, they would be imposing their own moral and political views on the law. Again, this is the standard picture. The standard picture says that the content of the law is the content, is the linguistic content of the texts that create the law. Notice that based on what we were talking about before, heart and open texture, those who want to say that the law is just the meaning of the text, these people are also against the idea that judges should be making law. They should only be finding it, but you can't have the two things together. If you take the standard picture and you think that legal content is linguistic content, it, that the concept of the law is just given by the meaning of the text, and we also think, along with Hart, that general terms in natural language have an area of open texture and vagueness, then it's going to turn out that the law is going to have tons of indeterminacy because natural language has tons of indeterminacy. So if you say judges should just stick to the text according uh, along the lines of the standard picture, you're going to get tremendous areas of judicial creativity because judges are going to have to make new law in order to plug up the holes left open by language. Okay. Now, Mark Greenberg has written a lot about the standard picture, and I highly recommend that you read his work, and we will be talking about some of his work later on in the podcast. He's a natural lawyer, 
extremely smart guy, wonderful person. Um, and so I'm going to lay out some some problems that he mentions about the standard picture, um, and I'll add one of my own. The first thing that he points out is that there are just lots and lots of different notions of meaning. So there's a very standard distinction between like what the text means and what the speaker means. I'll give you a joke that that gets across the distinction. There's a joke about Sidney Morgenbesser, who is a uh, he was a teacher of mine, but he was a very, fa he was a very famous uh, philosopher at Columbia University, extremely funny. And the story goes that when uh, J.L. Austin, philosopher of language, was giving a talk at um, a conference and said, he began to say, we find that in all languages, two negatives equal uh, uh, a positive. I'm sorry. He says, we find that two negatives equal a positive, but we never find that two positives equal a negative. From which Morgan Besser from the back um, yelled out, yeah, yeah. So what yeah, yeah means is yes, yes. But what Morgan Besser meant by yeah, yeah was no. So, um, or, some, or at least some form of dismissal, like, yeah, yeah, means, yeah, get, you know, uh, sod off. So we have literal meaning, we have contextual meaning, we have speaker's meaning, we have perhaps what a reasonable person would think under the circumstances. There's just a lots of different candidates for what meaning might be. One of the appealing things about the standard picture is you think, oh, it's really easy. Minute interpretation is really easy. All you do is figure out what the text means, but as Monk points out, there's just many different meanings to what the text means. And the standard picture people need to give an argument as to why they're picking the meaning that they are choosing and almost never do they tell you why they're choosing the notion of meaning that they're choosing and indeed often don't even recognize that they're, they're picking a particular uh, uh, variation. Another argument that Mark has made is that standard picture is really bad at dealing with case law. So do we really want to say that the contribution that a case makes to the law is just what it means? You know, lots of, lots of times when we teach law students at least in common law systems, we tell them, you know, it's much more important what a court does than what it says. And sometimes you say that the holding of a case isn't even stated in the case. So how are we supposed to make sense of the standard picture when it comes to cases? We don't want to say that the contribution that a case makes to the law is just it's, it's the meaning it has in natural language. Um, because virtually none of it contributes to the law, and maybe none of it contributes to the law, but their actions do contribute to the law. Anyway, I, I want to just reject the standard picture and really kind of delve more deeply into how to think about legal interpretation. And like we've done 
all through the podcast, I want to distinguish between two different kinds of meta-interpretive theories. One kind of meta-interpretive theory says that the in order to figure out what the right interpretive methodology is for a particular legal system, look at social facts. Now, the social facts may be linguistic meaning, may be um, uh, what a court did. It could be a, lots of different things, but it, you only look to social facts. And this would be a kind of positivistic uh, meta-interpretive theory. Or what you could do is you could look to moral facts. That is, if you want to figure out what the right interpretive methodology is for a particular legal system, you have to engage in moral reasoning. This would be more of a natural lawyer uh, 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 approach to meta-interpretation. So if you want to know whether you should be an originalist or a living constitutionalist, according to the natural lawyer, you have to engage in legal interpretation. I'm sorry, you have to engage in moral reasoning. Um, whereas if you're a positivist, you have to stick to just social facts. Dworkin's theory of constructive interpretation, at least at stage one of, uh, of legal interpretation, is a very well-developed natural law theory of meta-interpretation because he thinks that the right interpretive methodology is that which puts legal practice in its morally best light. We have yet to see a meta-interpretive theory from a positivist, uh, and I'll talk about that a bit in the next part. But I just want to point out that when we talk about what the right way to pick an interpretive methodology, we again have this choice. Do we just stick to social facts or are we permitted to use moral reasoning? Now, one of the arguments that Dworkin made as to why you need to rely on moral facts and on social facts is because he thought that the social facts that positivists require, namely consensus, is unavailable. And that's the argument from theoretical disagreements. So if you think that the right interpretive methodology for a particular legal system, if you're a positivist, is that which the legal officials have accepted in interpreting the law, Dworkin says, actually, they haven't accepted any interpretive methodology that is highly contested. And so the social facts that are required in order to be used in meta-interpretation just don't exist. There is no consensus, and so there is not the right kind of social fact. So therefore, the only thing that, that can explain theoretical disagreement is that meta-interpretation is taking part within the uh, it, it's taking um, uh, part. I'm sorry, <laughs> I haven't eaten lunch yet, so I'm a bit, I'm a bit slow. Um, the reason why theoretical disagreements are common in the law for Dworkin is because meta-interpretation involves moral reasoning and moral reasoning is highly contested. Anyway, what I'm gonna do is I am going to stop right now. I'm gonna eat some lunch. <laughs> I'm gonna come back a little bit more coherent. Okay, see you in a bit, bye.
Okay, part three, that is Finding Cannibals, doing a cover of Elvis's Suspicious Minds. Um, I'm in a better state of mind right now. I first of all, I had lunch. Um, I have this theory that like the body is like a machine and food is like fuel. And just like your car runs out of gas, if you don't eat enough, you feel you run out of gas. And so when you eat, you're like refueling. I know that sounds like a stupid idea, but that's at least the way I think about it. So I feel refueled. Um, also, something awesome just happened in the interim um, that there's a, a bot on Twitter, the fuck every philosopher bot. And it tweets out, it's fuck Immanuel Kant, fuck Hugo Grotius, fuck Spinoza. Um, and I just got fucked. That, that sounded really bad. The, that bot just tweeted out, fuck Scott J. Shapiro. So I feel very honored. So let me, let's, let's jump into, let's jump into men interpretation. So basically we've, we've seen through the course of the podcast, three men interpretive theories. The first one was Dworkin's constructive interpretation is that the right interpretive methodology of a particular legal system uh, is arrived at through constructive interpretation, that which makes the law the best that it can be. We saw Hart's standard picture, which basically says that all men interpretive theories are the same, that figure out what the texts mean, and that's what the law is. And then we have another, it's also a Hardian men interpretive theory, uh, which is that the right interpretive methodology of a particular legal system is given by the rule of recognition, by consensus. And I haven't really stated this directly, um, but might as well do it right now. So you might think that whether you should be an originalist or a purposivist or a textualist or whatever, just really depends on what consensus there is among legal officials. The problem with that, as pointed out thousands of times, is that this is Dworkin's point is it doesn't seem to be such a consensus, though originalists have lately tried to make this argument, but it, it, it it's, seems rather implausible. Um, so what I want to do is just lay out another. So and I'm sorry. So the first, the Dworkinian men interpretive theory is obviously a natural law theory. And the standard picture and the rule of recognition theories, those are positivistic. Um, I don't think the positivistic theories so far, the rule of recognition or the standard picture works. So what I would like to do is maybe is suggest an alter, uh, another positivistic theory uh, based on the planning theory. Because ultimately, the right interpretive methodology for a particular legal system is going to depend in some way, um, directly or indirectly, I think quite directly, on the, uh, on the identity of law, on what law is. And according to the planning theory, the law is a planning system, and laws are plans. And so the right way to interpret law is the right way to interpret plans. And luckily we know how to interpret plans because we do it all the time. I mean, we're, you know, I don't know, hundreds of times a day, we're interpreting our own plans, other people's plans. 
Um, and so the idea would be that the right interpretive methodology of a particular legal system depends on the planning nature of law. Now, how might that work? Let me start off with this following idea. I'm not going to give a, a, a long discussion of this. I just want to give you a sense of how you might think about um, meta-interpretation and the right interpretive methodology uh, as a positivist by using the planning theory. And here's, how, here's how it goes. Well, flaws are plans. How do we interpret plans? Well, one very natural thought is the right way to interpret plans is according to their purpose. After all, why do you have plans? You have plans in order to further some goal of yours. That's why you have the plan. So it would make perfect sense to interpret a plan according to its purpose. If you have some questions about what the text that lays out the plan means, what you should do is it interpret according to the purpose of the plan, because that will further the reason that you made the plan. Now, the reason why that, I mean, I think it's an intuitive argument, but it's just, I think it's quite flawed. And the reason is, is that plans are adopted, not just in order to achieve a certain purpose, but is also they're adopted because they're trying to deal with certain sets of constraints that makes decisions on the spot difficult. Now, one of the most important reasons why we make plans is because of lack of trust or maybe um, having strong trust in somebody else. But the trust is a central issue in planning. Um, I often talk about in legality, the trust management role of plans. Plans are sophisticated devices for managing trust and distrust. They enable people to capitalize on the trust that planners have in their subjects, but also to compensate for the lack of trust. So, I mean, I, I, if lots of times I plan for myself because I don't trust my future self to be able to get the right answer at, at, a, at a given time, but sometimes I plan things for my children because I don't trust them to make the right decisions. Or I may tell my wife to do some things and I'll do other because I trust her more than I trust myself. So one of the things that's very important when we talk about uh, plans is not just to worry about the aim of the plan, the goal that the plan is trying to accomplish, but also trying to figure out the relationships of trust and distrust. Here's a thought. The more distrustful the plan is in the subject of the plan, the less discretion they should have in interpreting the text that sets out the plan. Conversely, the more trust that somebody has in the subject, the more discretion they should have to interpret the text in accordance with the purpose of the plan. So it's like a kind of um, a push-pull. On the one hand, the purpose of the plan gives interpreters reasons to interpret the texts purposively. On the other hand, the lack of trust that the planner might have in the subject is a reason not to interpret the text in accordance with the purpose. 
if we were to expand this to the law, what we would say is that it's, let's not just think of legal systems as distributions of power and authority, but let's think of them as distributions of trust and distrust. And the more distrustful a legal system is in its officials, the less discretion they should have to interpret the law in accordance with the purposes of the law. Conversely, the more trust that the law has in um, actors, the more discretion it should have. I call the distribution of trust and distrust in the legal system the economy of trust. And so one goal of meta-interpretation is to find out what the right interpretive methodology that best harmonizes with that legal system's economy of trust. So that those who get little trust in the economy of trust should have less discretion and those who have um, more trust, uh, they should have greater discretion. And I'm gonna talk about this next week when we talk about Scalia, but I think one of the very most powerful arguments that uh, textualists and originalists have had, uh, have made, although they don't make it exactly in these terms, is that the that judges shouldn't have a lot of discretion when interpreting the law, precisely because the American legal system is highly distrustful of them. Um, and I'll talk about this next week, but, but I think uh, originalism and textualism on the planning theory get understood as being supported by a claim about the distrustful nature of the um, a particular legal system in question. I mean, also, uh, trust is not the only thing that matters in planning. Another thing that matters in planning is the level of conflict of interest between uh, the planners and the planned. So, one of the reasons why we engage in planning is because we disagree with one another about certain things or we have different reasons for engaging in certain activities. But if we plan, we can still coordinate on something that for each of our different reasons enables us to um, further some common project. So I, so if I, I may want to go out to, to lunch with you um, because I have no money and you have money, whereas you want to go out to lunch with me because you like me and you want me to talk about the planning theory. Um, the plan, let's have lunch, uh, allows us to pursue a common project going out to lunch, but for very different reasons. The idea would be that the more, the, the greater the conflict of, of interests and values in a legal system should militate in favor of less discretion. So the more pluralism there is, the more uh, the, a legal community is divided on fundamental ideas and fundamental principles, uh, the less discretion judges and legal officials should have in interpreting the law and according to purpose, because the, the, the idea would be that the plans were generated precisely because there was disagreement about deeper issues. And you don't want interpreters to go to those deeper issues in cases of interpretive doubt, 
because you would be upsetting the very function that the plan was meant to serve. The plan was meant to settle disagreement at a certain common project. And if you go beyond that common project and somebody engages in discretion about how to further a certain purpose, when that purpose is very shallow, then you will be undoing what the plan, the law was meant to do. So the idea would be that in meta interpretation, what a, a meta interpreter should do is try to figure out what the economy of trust of the particular legal system is and the level of conflict of values, the level of pluralism, and accord enough discretion to interpreters that's in line with that economy of trust and that level of pluralism. The greater the distrust and the greater uh, level of pluralism, the less discretion they should have, the more trust and the more commonality, the greater discretion they should have. And a lot of the disagreement about interpretive methodology among legal theorists and academics and officials, I think, can be reconstructed as disagreements about what the level of trust in the legal system is and the level of conflict of values there are. I will pick this up next uh, over the next couple of sessions, episodes, uh, but I just want to kind of set out what another, an alternative positivistic picture would go because the, the, the level of trust and the degree of commonality in values, those are social facts. It's not the social facts that are of interest uh, in meta interpretation are not consensus on interpretive methodology, but rather these more kind of fundamental questions about trust and about um, uh, commonality of values. Anyway, I, I will flesh this out further over the next couple of episodes. I hope everyone stays safe and uh, enjoys um, uh, the, the, their week. Okay, uh, take care. Bye-bye.